that's what I did. Yeah, so one, two, yeah. three. That's what I, I'm really excited, Carrie was right, to, to be with you again. I just want to say thank you to the handful in here who sent me text messages and emails this week just telling me your progress and your journey and how sweet that is and encouraging and it, it's, it's I, I hold that very closely. Just the fact that you're transparent enough to share some of your life and your walk and testimonies even of people coming in the class today, so thank you. Um, I know for the last week we've been talking about the identity of the Father and how easy it is to get that twisted up a little bit. Um, we know that we can slide one way or the other away from what's true about Father God. And sometimes we do it and we don't even realize how it is that we got there. We just know that it happened. And so if we're going to be people who walk in freedom and who walk by the Spirit, that identity has to be set right. And we can try and try and try and try to do it ourselves and we, and we can mess it up even more. The Father wants to meet with us. He responds when we draw near. And so I'm immensely thankful, um, as he said, that for the baby steps, the small steps where we're trying to draw near and build more capacity, I am not satisfied. I'm continually trying to draw near and near. Um, we started last week talking about all the reasons why we tend to get some distance from God on one side or the other, and that our hearts can be hardened. We were looking at the Hebrews 4 passage, and that first step in the outline that I gave you, do not harden your heart if you hear his voice. And we talked about our hearts can be hardened from wounding, entanglement, sin, ungodly beliefs, some sort of demonic influence. And I was thinking about it this week, and I think that one of the scariest verses in the Bible, and there's some, there's a handful that are kind of scary, comes from 2 Chronicles 25. And it's talking, if you're not familiar, most people don't hang out there for their quiet time, but if you're not familiar with what's going on in that chapter, King Amaziah takes the throne, and he's a young king, and it says, he did right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a whole heart. How many can relate? I can relate. And so you watch this young king, who probably has the best of intentions, right? And his first act of kingliness is to execute some revenge. But then after he kills some people off, he tries to go back to the law and make sure that the people he killed off, their children don't pay for their father's sins. And so you just see him in about one chapter swinging back and forth and back and forth. And I get laser focused on he was trying to do the right things, but not with a whole heart. And ultimately the broken pieces in his heart led to his dem demise. And I think that that's a pretty sobering chapter. And so he wants justice, he wants to do the right thing, and he listens to mentors, but then he chooses wrongly. And, and I think we do that. I know a lot of people that do right in the sight of the Lord, but their heart, it has some broken pieces. It has some wounded pieces. I know non-believers who technically do morally right things, but their hearts are really, really broken. Their hearts are not whole. So we want to talk a little bit today in greater detail. How, how does that happen? What does that look like? And I want to frame it. I think that it's, it's an easy way to look at your own life. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that you may be one of these. You may be both. I've been both at one time or another. When our hearts become hardened, there's a reason that it happened. And it happened either because we're a prisoner or we're a captive. And some of you may say, well, I've been both, or I'm more this today, but 10 years ago I was this. 
And a prisoner gets in jail because they've done something to deserve it. A prisoner is in a prison because they've committed a crime, they've committed a sin. Often these prisons in the Christian walk, they are a self-made prison. I am choosing to do something that goes against the heart of God, that goes against his holiness. A captive ends up in jail for no fault of their own. A captive gets kicked through a door that they did not intend to walk through. And I think the Bible gives some pretty good examples of this. Remember I said we're doing a lot of things, but you can find the evidence right there in the Bible. The brokenheartedness, the half-heartedness, King Amaziah is a great example. The prisoner, a really easy one to look at because we know it, we're so familiar with it, is the prodigal. And the prodigal has a very self-made prison. He was doing a lot of things he should not have done. He was living a life. I've actually, in the last 20 years, in my opinion, only prayed with two for real prodigals. Most people are in some sort of sin because they're the second, they're the captive. But I have had the privilege to pray with two young men, with a team of other men on the prayer team, who just said, yeah, I have great parents and I was raised in the church, but I'm going to see what this looks like. And I'll tell you, they did not get very far before they came crawling back. So there are some sinful things that we do that land us in jail. But what's important to look at today, how does the Lord restore that brokenness? How does he restore that hardened heart? When the prodigal comes back to the father, the father runs to him. So there's that nearness. He's drawing near and the father meets him almost in double time, right? goes with the Hebrews 4 scripture. Draw near, the father draws near, he meets him, he embraces him, he kisses him. There's an intimacy there as a son. He covers him, he gives him a ring, sandals, he restores him back to sonship. And there's rejoicing and a party and it's restoration. That is how the father, it's a picture of how Father God meets the prodigal who put himself in his own jail. I won't have you raise your hands, but I would guess that most of us can relate. We have been the prodigal at one time or another where we made our own prison. I am 100% convinced that there are captives in this room too. Statistically, I, I know there are. There are probably more captives at this point than there are prodigals. And I really feel like, although not a perfect representation, Mephibosheth is a great example of what this looks like. And if you're not familiar with him, you're not hanging out with him in your quiet time, this is a son of Jonathan. And he is five years old when the whole Saul-Jonathan kingdom is collapsing. Saul's his grandfather, Jonathan is his father. <coughs> that kingdom collapses and in the chaos, Mephibosheth's nursemaid or nanny is running out with him and drops him. And he is now lame in both feet for the rest of his life. He's about five, he's about like late teens probably when David begins to remember the loyalty he felt for Jonathan, the friendship, the love, and he says, I wanna bless someone. Is there anybody left in Jonathan's family? And they bring lame Mephibosheth who was kicked through a door that he did not ask for at five years old. And I love this story. I've sat with this story for about a year and each time I look at it, I get new insight that I'm thankful that I, I relate to Mephibosheth on this. And the Lord says, through David, David's the picture here, I am going to restore every bit of land that you lost, Mephibosheth. I'm going to give you back the territory that belongs to you. 
And from now on, you will have a seat at my table as a king's son. So for anyone in here who relates to this, who's been a captive and kicked through doors you didn't ask for, the Lord's heart in this story is, I will restore the territory that was taken. Now, David didn't say, miraculously, I'm going to make you not crippled, because that would be unholy, right? If the Lord just started picking favorites and changed the story. No, he was suffering a consequence of war, of sin. But David says, you get everything back that was lost, and you will eat at my table as a son. Mephibosheth can't even get himself to the table. So there are servants there doing what he can't do for himself. They harvest the food, they bring it to him, and he is a son. He looks pretty orphaned when he shows up, right? But something about sitting at the table made it okay. That's the promise for people in here who've been captive. You get everything restored back, the territory that was lost, and you get to sit at the table. It's really, really good news. So there's a picture of restoration, the Father's heart for both. And we have to kind of remind ourselves, remind our soul, remind our flesh that this is what's true as our identity as sons and daughters. If you've been a wayward son or daughter, or you've been a traumatized, wounded son or daughter, there are ways back. And the Father has every good gift to give. So let's look at some of this a little bit um, in greater detail. It's been my experience, and I can make a pretty good case of it, just in the Big C Church, I've been a part of lots of different churches, that most Christian people who are active churchgoers, they line up with one of these behaviors as a, a son or daughter. They're either acting orphaned, even though they've been adopted in, like we talked the first week. They're either acting like a servant, we'll talk about that in a second, or they're actually on their way to true sonship or daughtership. And I want to kind of outline those today, outline them for you, so that when we pray, we're going to pray at the end of the class today, and we're going to actually kind of practice some of this. It's important when we go to the Father to know, well, which one do I really line up with? Most of us just quickly would say, yeah, I'm a son and daughter of God. But sometimes our behaviors show something really, really opposite. So let's look at just this orphan behavior, this orphan mentality. I've talked a lot about my daughter, my youngest, who we adopted. And I, I talk about her, and I always go home and I tell her, and Corey told her last week, your mom was saying so many great things about you because she knows her story. At five, she can talk about her story. And my favorite part when she tells her story is, you picked me. And then we get really excited. Yeah, we picked you. Millions, millions of girls, we picked you. We saw your picture, and we were like, that's a Barnett. And so she's, she's learning this story as she transitions out of orphanhood into daughtership. And we all kind of walk that transition. It could be a course of weeks. It could be a course of months. For Grace, it's been a course of years. When we first brought her home, though, even though she was legally adopted, she was legally a daughter, legally a Barnett, her source of comfort was not her mother and father. In fact, she would be in her crib and she would violently rock herself back and forth to self-comfort, to self-pacify. It was the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen. And we couldn't stop her from doing it. It made her more frantic. We would find her on the carpet, flipping back and forth, trying to comfort herself. And here is a mother and father with every good gift. We would give her every bit of comfort and she couldn't receive it yet. So you'll know 
if you have a little bit of an orphan mentality yet left in you, even if you know up here you're a true son and daughter, if your source of comfort is anything other than the Lord. And yes, that can look like addiction. That's a really easy one to go to. That's a numbing, pacifying comfort thing when we go to things and vices to get comfort. But oftentimes it looks like crazed church activity. If I just stay busy, if I just do enough for the Lord, that'll be enough. If your source of comfort is activity or addiction or anything other than drawing near to the Father, there's a little bit of orphan mentality left. If your position and the condition looks more orphaned, it's something to go to the Father about. And what I mean by that is when we brought Grace home, we would have like family nights, family Friday movie nights, and in our living room there was a rug. And the fun about family Friday movie night, we would eat pizza on the rug. That's a big deal with four kids because I am going to pay for it. But we're having pizza on the rug. And we would get the pizza and the chocolate chip cookies, and we're all on the rug. And she would stay just off the rug. And I would be on my hands and knees, puppets, whatever I could do. Come on, come on, come get on the rug. She was over here. Some of y'all do church life off the rug. Because for whatever reason, that little bit of orphan mentality keeps you separate. I don't think I can fully come in to the family. And if you're off the rug, love looks very conditional. For Grace, it was understandably conditional. Well, I will love you once I trust that you're really going to love me and, and not harm me. I'll love you once I'm convinced that you're not going to leave. Until then, I'm staying just off the rug. I can see you. I can hear you, but I will not come and be in the center of family life. If your position and your condition with the Lord and the body looks off the rug, there's a little bit of orphan mentality left. Let's talk about self-image as an orphan. We would offer grace every good thing. I remember a friend came over and she had this massive like puppy dog. It was like this big. I would never do that because like where are you going to put that now in the house? But people were ready to give her good things. And they showed up with this massive fluffy puppy dog. My other three kids are like running and gymnastics leaping onto it because it was so great. And something about the greatness of that gift, the sensory, fluffy, soft, she never had that. She couldn't do it. She was more content actually to to mess with a paper bag, I remember it, from a grocery store. And just kind of walk around with the bag and circle the good thing. Because she hadn't quite realized that she could have this really great thing that she had never had before. So off the rug, unable to take the good thing, her self-image still looked really, really orphaned. And here's the kicker. If none of these get you, I'm pretty confident this last one will. Competition. So for the first year and a half, when Grace came home to our house. She could care less about me and Corey. She did not want anything to do with us. We had to build that trust until one of the siblings came over and started getting love. And so my, my other three children would come over and they would hug and she was right there really fast in a fit, tantrum, yelling, doing whatever she could to distract. And here's the cool thing about this. My other three biological children they were confident of their sonship and their daughtership. And so when that would happen, they would look at us like they had little adult eyes. They were little and go, 
like, we know, Mom. We know. It's okay. You deal here. That's how a true son and daughter acts. Grace is flailing. And maybe some of you are going, well, I don't throw a fit when the father pours out love on someone else. But what happens when, in your mind when you see people promoted? Do you get jealous? Is there a little bit of church rivalry? I have done women's ministry for a long time. I promise you it's there. I've seen it play out. When someone else is getting accolades, do you kind of go, well, in this critical heart, this judgment spirit, well, they don't deserve that, and I know what they did on Friday, and I've been here for 25 years. When's someone going to know? You know, what plays out in your mind when that happens? That comes from an orphaned place when we have rivalry, when we have competition, when we try to position ourselves up higher so we feel better about ourselves and position everybody else in a lower spot. That is not how a true son and daughter acts. A true son and daughter acts like my kids did in that situation. It's okay, Mom. Do what you need to do. We know because we've studied the adoption literature with you. Like they were fine. They were unfazed because she was coming into the family and we made a huge deal about everything and sometimes things were not a huge deal. But we made them so, so she could be loved unconditionally, so she could come onto the carpet. If there are places that even you work that out in your mind, not that any of you are throwing raging fits in the middle of the church lobby, but if in your mind there's a positioning and a rivalry and a competition, that's not true sonship, it's not true daughtership, and we have to get that identity right. So maybe for some of you in the room, you're thinking, well, that's not me. It might not be. I get that. For those of you who it is you, let's just talk about orphans in the Bible a little bit because the Lord has a great heart for this. Esther is orphaned. She saves a nation, right? Joseph is abandoned by family, <coughs> saves a nation. Daniel's taken captive away from his family, saves a nation. Jesus is an adopted son. He's on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? He feels the abandonment from the Father and he saves the world. If you have been orphaned, if you walk in that, I'm gonna guess it likely comes from being taken captive from a wounded place, the Lord has restoration. And that's not me just trying to pump you up, it is in here over and over and over again. So maybe some of you are like, no, I'm not orphaned, but I don't really feel the sonship part yet. I would guess you fall in the category of a servant. And servants are good. Paul says he's a bond servant. We want to be servants of Christ. But if we're servants of Christ without taking a hold of the sonship and the daughtership part, we will fizzle out. We'll grow numb. We'll grow bitter. We'll grow weary. And you could go through your whole life doing service-type things. And often it's hard to tell the difference between a servant and a son. A servant and the son are in the fields all day. They're doing the harvest. They're doing the work. They're doing all the things to keep the kingdom and the household going until dinner. And the difference between a servant and a son is that the son or the daughter sits down at the table to eat. So if you've been serving and serving and doing all this work for the Lord, when is the last time you sat down at the table with the Father to eat? And that imagery is all over the Bible. I used to get really perplexed by the, he sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Like, what's the point of that? Just to go, aha, I don't think that's it. I think a son and daughter sit at the table and you're aware of the enemies, but you are no longer impressed by them. 
you're aware that they're out there, but your focus is no longer on that. You are at the table face to face with the Father. You have chosen to draw near. A son and a daughter sits down at the table at the end of the day with the Father. That's the big difference. I want to be a bondservant to Christ. I want to line up with everything that Paul says, but I cannot do it fully unless at the end of the day I get some proximity and some intimacy with the Father. My guess is there are probably more servants in this room who are kind of stuck there and trying to get to the place where they're like a son and daughter and can sit down at the table. And I will tell you that is okay. It's an okay place to start. If it bothers you that it's there like that, if you're like, yeah, I serve and serve, but I, I can't even imagine what it would feel like to sit at the table, it is a grace that that, that disturbs your heart. The Lord has more. He's going to bring you into more. Let's talk for a minute um, about being a son or a daughter. And I just listed some scriptures. There are a billion. I just gave you some. Here's the true identity for every person in this room. John 1, you have received the right to become children of God. You are all sons and daughters of God. Ephesians 1, 5, you have been predestined to adoption. You can tell your adoption story like grace. He chose me. He chose me. He picked me. He said, you, out of all these people, you have the same story. Colossians, you have been made complete. Every broken place just needs that truth appropriated. There is a completion for you, and it's yours for the taking. 1 Corinthians, you are one spirit with God. Romans 6, you are no longer slaves to sin. Genesis 1, you have been made in the image of God. That's right at the beginning of the Bible. Have you ever sat before the Father, drawing near to Him like we've been talking about, and asked Him, what, what do I carry that looks like you? You can ask that because we are not God incarnate, but we have some sort of thumbprint on us that looks like God. Have you ever taken the time to ask what it is? Because man, if you knew it, wouldn't that make things a little easier? And it's so simple. We were sitting with our oldest son doing some very intentional discipleship because it dawned on us that we have like four years before he's out of the house. And so we want to make sure he gets this. And we were looking at this really cool video that eighth grade boys would like and we started going through this passage and I said Carter what does that mean and he said well I'm not totally sure I said well you carry bits of me and you carry bits of your dad in the same manner you carry a measure of God do you want to ask him what it is and he was like okay and he closed his eyes and they popped open real fast and he said I think the Lord said that I have his eyes and I knew immediately what that, sorry, what that meant. I said, do your eyes look like him? Because I don't want to just feed the eighth grade boy because they just nod and go, yeah. I said, what does that mean? Do they look like him? And he said, no, I see the broken like he does. That's spot on, spot on for this kid. This is the kid who when he went to get his adopted sister, he could not handle standing in the orphanage because it was a silent room of 27 cribs. There were two babies in each one. He had watched brothers and sisters be born into the world, and they are loud. Loved babies are loud, and they're like, pay attention to me. This was a silent room. In his eyes, he was 10, filled with tears, and he said, Mom, I can't. I got to Like, it wrecked him, this little boy. So he was right on. He heard from the father. I said, did that sound like the Lord? 
He said, yeah, I think it did. I said, had you ever thought of that before? Is this something you've, you know, mustered up? He said, no. I was like, does it feel true in your gut, in your spirit? He said, yeah. I said, now, why would he give you his eyes? Because it's one thing to say, I look like God in this, but if we just kind of hide it under a bushel, it's not going to do anything. We're always about the next step, freedom for the next step, freedom for the glory piece. He said, well, I'm, I'm supposed to look for them care for them. I was like, yeah, and he does that. I've seen it over and over again. You were made in the image of God as sons and daughters of God. First John 3, what great love, that we should be called children of God. Colossians, this one is cool. You could spend a lot of time on this. We have been raised with Christ. Talk about elevating your position. You're on the rug and then some. We're raised with Christ. What does that really mean when we appropriate it to all the broken places, all the hardened pieces of our heart? And then probably my favorite, First Peter, we are chosen people. He picked you, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special possession. What would it look like if the big C church, I'm, I'm not, I guess it's that way for you guys. I'm not just talking about Otter Creek. What would it look like if we walked in that kind of identity as sons and daughters all the time? A chosen people, a royal priesthood. You aren't just sons and daughters, you're royal sons and daughters. That is the truest piece of our identity. And my, my strong hunch is that that identity has been twisted up a little bit along the way. I, I've never met a person that it didn't happen one way or the other. Of course, the enemy would want that, right? If we can't quite get the identity of the father right, if we can't quite get our identity as sons and daughters right, well, we're just kind of lukewarm and numb. It's important that we get this. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We are going to practice today for a little bit. I'd like for you to get in groups of two or three and I will say, I'm just going to preface this. I know a lot of you don't know each other, I'm assuming. A healthy church is a transparent church. I'm just going to ask you to be as brave as you can comfortably be with the people in your group. A healthy church is always transparent. It can look a little messy and look a little scary, but it's healthy. And so if you'll take a moment, get in groups of two or three, and then I'm going to give you instructions from there. Go ahead and do that. Just circle up. And just take a moment and introduce yourselves if you haven't already. Have you look up here real fast? I love that you guys like to talk to each other because I'm going to let you in just a second. I'm going to prep you for what we're going to do so nobody is, is caught off guard. Then I'm going to pray and have you pray with me. We're going to kind of group prayer for a second. And then in your group, you're just going to talk to each other about what the Lord showed you. And again, it's an honoring culture in this room. I'm just going to ask you to agree with me that if someone shares something in your group 
that you don't go and put it in the Otter Creek Bulletin or on a mass email. This is safe, safe working space, okay? I'm also going to ask, I would bet in a group of two or three, one of y'all is brave enough to really give a transparent answer. I hope you all are. But be receiving of each other. It is hard to tell the truth sometimes, especially in church. We want to be a community that, that grows into more and more transparency as we draw closer and closer to God. They should go together because we're all on equal playing field, okay? So I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes because then you're not distracted. And Lord, we, we just say in agreement, we want to get this right. We want to know you truly as the Father, as you truly are. And we want to walk as sons and daughters as we were truly created to be. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to, to work on our hearts, to re reveal the truth, to take away all the, the veils and the baggage that block us from knowing the truth. And Lord, we know you are gentle and merciful and kind. And when you reveal the truth, it's a kindness, it's a grace, and it's intended to bring us closer onto the carpet as true sons and daughters. And so friends, I ask right now that you ask the Holy Spirit to, to do the work. And that you're able to ask the Father, how do I really see myself? Not who I think I'm supposed to be, but how do I really operate? Do I operate with some orphaned pieces? Do I have some leftover orphaned mentality that I still carry with me unnecessarily? God, would you show me that? Would you show me those places? Or Lord, do I operate solely as a servant without any promise of true sonship or daughtership? Have I believed places where that's as far as I can get? I can serve and serve, but I'm never going to quite get to the table. It's not really for me. Would you show me, God, if that's true? Would you show me if that's how I operate? Would you show me how it got there? Why do I believe that? God, would you show me if my identity as a son or daughter has been twisted up because I have put myself in my own prison. I have chosen some things and some paths that keep me in jail and away from you. Would you show me what that is, Lord? Why is that there? Or for some, Lord, would you show me this place of wounding that's kept me distant, where I feel less than even though you've invited me to the table? Would you speak to me about why that's there? Would you show me your heart for the places where I still feel captive?
And Father God, we know that when we wait on you, when we wait for you, no one will be left ashamed. And we just speak that truth in this room. None of those who wait for you will be left ashamed. And so we trust you today to reveal the pieces that our heart can handle, the pieces that we need to keep drawing closer. And we love you, Lord. We say that you're good and worthy of our trust. And we want to know your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. And so now in your group, all I want you to do is just start talking. And if some of you are really brave, if someone says something that obviously deserves some prayer around it, go for it. You can ask the Lord, how did this get there? Is it a wound? Is it tangled up in something? Is it sin? Am I believing something false? If your only prayer is, Jesus, will you meet them? That's a good place to start. You are all equipped to do that. But I just want you to talk about what the Lord showed you and, and be brave. And this is an honoring culture. So go for it. <laughs> 